Hey there, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Tricky Kid Radio. I am your host, as always, Roy Turner. What a great freaking show we have for you uh, this week. I couldn't be more excited about it. You know, I like all of our guests, but I definitely would say I like some more than others. Uh, This is somebody I've been long been looking forward to speaking with. We got filmmaker Adam Dubin. Uh, He has a new movie out uh, based on uh, this amazing book about the rise of thrash metal uh, that came out in 2002 called Murder in the Front Row. And his documentary is of the same title and it's just been released and it's outstanding, man. I mean, again, it's it works as a documentary because you wouldn't have to be a fan of that stuff. It helps, but uh, if you're not, I uh, you know I still encourage you to check it out. You'll learn so much. You'll enjoy it. You'll love it. You'll there's it's impossible you not to see a couple familiar faces. He's got like every member of Metallica, every surviving member of Slayer. Um, you know the guys at Megadeth, and and just what a great groundswell of creativity from that time. It's such a special story, such a special time, and uh, and he captures it perfectly. The book is great, uh, the movie is great. It's um, uh, narrated by you know metal ambassador Brian Posehn, who you know who we just had on the show a few weeks back. If you haven't heard that episode, I uh, greatly encourage you to check that out. Uh, Brian actually has uh, his own comedy record where he's actually also kind of you know we're not kind of he's definitely singing and kicking ass. Uh, well, um, that just came out. And there's like a whole laundry list of awesome uh, talent on that record, like Scotty and from Anthrax and. Uh, the whole bit there. So, uh, so Adam and I had a great talk. Uh, here's something else uh, about Adam Dubin. Is it Adam is the guy who co-directed the Beastie Boys' uh, "You Got to Fight for Your Right to Party" video, as well as "No Sleep Till Brooklyn," along with the late great uh, you know Rick Manello. So you best believe I had to ask him about that. So I mean, again, I'm sure he gets asked about it all the time, but. Uh, you know, we lost MCA, Adam Yauk, eight years ago this week. And so I would have been remiss that somebody uh, was in that room throwing those pies uh, at that video. And, of course, Don't Sleep Till Brooklyn features uh, Slayer's Carrie King that also features heavily into um, the, the documentary Murder in the Front Row. So a great thing. And also, if you haven't seen the, the newest Beastie Boys story, uh, a documentary that just came out. Holy shit! It's so great. I was fortunate enough to have to have been at the shows where they filmed them uh, in Brooklyn, King's Theater, uh, last year. Uh, and what just an amazing time that is! It's such a such a neat world uh, that the BC Boys create. It's just a it's worlds inside of worlds that can only come from them. And not just to mention that, but it's, it's like just like how their book was. If you if you saw the BC Boys book, they are incapable or would never just write your typical behind the music you know we found fame we found drugs we got clean and made a shitty album the end like they would never do that so even the book is this crazy interactive innovative interesting uh just Innovative is beyond words. And then, of course, the audiobook has its own, uh, again, like I said, worlds inside of worlds inside of worlds. So, anyway, so uh, great talk with Adam. Also, um, talking about Adam Yauk uh, as well uh, to honor this week's episode uh, to the memory uh, of MCA Adam Yauk, who, again, we lost uh, eight years ago. I can't believe it. I was actually, um, some people actually started doing a, um, 
this great thing every year called MCA Day to honor his life. And the very first one happened not very long, just a, it feels like it was a few short weeks when we were all just shell-shocked uh, about Adam Yauch's passing. And I was living in New York at the time and, and just a very kind of loose, impromptu kind of thing. Uh, some fans just, God, just felt like they just they needed to get out and not be alone with this grief and all kind of just you know, suddenly kind of gathered in, uh, in in Union Square with just a radio and just, you know, just, just something cool. And the next thing you know, people started coming. And I was there. And and then, uh, God, Horvitz and his wife Kathleen showed up. And, and it didn't turn into, like, like I said, some lame, you know, like, can I get your picture kind of thing. It was just we were all, you know, hurting. I've always considered myself to be that fourth Beastie Boy. I'm sure I'm not alone in that. But uh, um so it was uh, so so great to, to to hear from Adam. He was Rick Rubin's freaking roommate. Uh, and, you know when you hear about you know the whole Beastie Boys story about how they needed a DJ and they found this you know weird metal guy at NYU college dorm. Well, Adam Dupin lived there with, in that he was in that dorm living somehow buried underneath Rick Rubin's. Uh, gear and shit uh, when the Beastie Boys first arrived. So, uh, a fascinating talk. But again, the the, the primary thing, of course, here is uh, his new movie, uh, Murder in the Front Row. That's about the rise, of course, of uh, thrash metal in the Bay Area that gave birth, of course, to Metallica um, and, you know, so many others. Exodus. Exodus finally getting there. Their, uh, their comeuppance is long overdue for that to be featured, along with, of course, Testament and Death Angel and, um, you know, so many, you know, great, great bands. And I live for that stuff. I mean, I grew up with that stuff. Master of Puppets came out when I was like 12, and I was just, you know, very, you know, you have to hang your hat on something. So, you know, you want, you know, when you get to be somewhere there at the beginning of something, it always it always stays with you. Uh, Adam's done a lot of work with Metallica. He, he Metallica fans might remember, uh, of course, a year and a half in the life of Metallica. He he was there for that year and a half and uh, directed the Nothing Else Matters video. Uh, that's kind of you know pretty much it's footage from um, a year and a half in the life of Metallica. Um, and uh, he also did the uh, the documentary "Hit the Lights" that was the making of the "Through the Never." You guys might remember this movie that Metallica did. It came out in theaters where it was kind of half performance and kind of a neat little interactive thing that uh, didn't quite land where it probably they probably had hoped that it did. But it was definitely a, a, a neat thing. I remember me and some friends saw it at the theater. I've got a uh, my buddy uh, Ryan Buchanan. Uh, shout out to him who is a uh, uh, you know Metallica is his religion, and so we always try to. To kind of do something fun when they come out with new products and stuff. So, uh, speaking of new products, so since we're going to be talking about the history of uh, thrash metal, uh, is and of course we are going to get into some stuff with the Beastie Boys there. Uh, what about the future uh, of thrash metal? You know, uh, again, instead of digging into um, you know, some, you know, a, a B-side. I love all those records, you know, uh, from the big four of Thrash. How about something new? Uh, there's a great band uh, out uh, based right here in Dallas, Texas, uh, where I am, uh, called Protest. And they have an album called A Pledge to Terror. And it's awesome, man. Uh, Protest features uh, vocalist Dave Woodard. He was um, in an old band called Billy Club. Uh, speaking of Thrash, guess, of course, you know, uh, the Stormtroopers of Death, S.O.D., I actually have a Sergeant D action figure that just landed on my desk. Uh, Sergeant D is coming, and you're on his list. 
Um, so great. One thing, if you haven't seen it, is during this whole pandemic thing, which I, I don't try to mention on the show because this is supposed to be an escape from that, is Charlie Benante is kicking so much ass. And this is no disrespect to any anybody else, but I, you know, you can't really see bored millionaires, uh, you know, doing what, uh, what what Benante is doing. He's still pushing his creativity, and if you follow his Instagram account, it is gold, man. He is doing this thing called Yo Watch the Beat, you know, of course from you know I'm the Man and all that, and it's kind of has the, the same font from Yo MTV Raps, and he's doing stuff like he's playing guitar while doing. Um, uh, you know, Tom Petty with his girlfriend Carla Harvey from the Butcher Babies, as well as doing, he was doing King's X songs. Of course, you know, we're currently doing our own film right now um, uh, on King's X that uh, we'll have out for you uh, very, very soon. In fact, I had a very, very big, big day today in, in the King's X movie making world, which I hope I'll be able to, to share with all of you very, 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 very soon. Um, I will say for now uh, that that teaser is coming, man, uh, as well as the launch of the website, and we hope to have that for you very soon, sooner than later. So, so stick around. Surprises are around the corner. But I wanted to tell you, uh, I said again about Charlie Benante, and then he's doing like all this stuff with the bass player from Suicidal Tendencies, doing everything from the Chemical Brothers. Um, so just all kinds of you know to rush all kinds of great stuff and that's a that's a pretty uh wide trifecta but if any great thing has truly come from this pandemic is that it took a global pandemic for sod at least three-fourths of them to uh to reunite so if you haven't seen um scott charlie and of course dan loker uh doing uh the march of the sod as well as uh chromatic death on benante's um Instagram account. I implore you, especially if you're listening to this episode, because uh, if you came here for the thrash, uh, that will serve you well. So anyway, so again, uh, there's so Jason French uh, and Mike Fury, um, who are um, uh, current actually MOD members. Uh, Billy Milano, uh, the singer for SOD, who of course created MOD, has been a Texas resident for at least the last like 20 years. I tell a funny story. Uh, I think I don't know if I told it on this episode or not, but uh, um, but there's uh, I had a funny run in with Billy Milano a few years ago. Anyway, um, I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of Billy Milano stories out there. Uh, but anyway, but this album kicks ass, man. Uh, Jason French uh, also produced it. Um, it was mixed by uh, Braxton uh, Henry. And uh, it's on the great Dallas label, uh, Idol Records. Shout out to uh, my man, Irv Coelis, who's been running this thing forever, who also put out the old Billy Club stuff. So I'm going to play you a track. Uh, in fact, I'm going to play you a couple of tracks probably from this uh, throughout this episode. Um, they've got a, uh, a two-song uh, EP, uh, again, uh, called A Pledge to Terror. And it'll be actually be available this Friday. Um, coming up May the 8th. But I'm going to give you an early early uh, t- uh, taste of it here to kind of give you a, get you excited about it. Again, again, it's called A Pledge of Terror. I'm going to play uh, the title track uh, here in a little bit. Make sure you look for that coming uh, this Friday. And we're going to pay some bills here um, with some announcements. So I'm going to play the title track, A Pledge to Terror. Uh, and uh, we'll be right back with uh, Adam Dubin uh, talking about uh, Murder in the Front Row. Let's rock. 
Hey there, everybody. This is Neil Found from Clutch, and you are listening to Tricky Kid Radio with Roy Turner. Okay, again, that was uh, a pledge to terror uh, by the fucking brutal protest, man. You got to see the album cover of this. Make sure you, you get this when it comes out this Friday, May the 8th. Uh, it's, good. it's awesome, awesome stuff. Uh, just heavy as hell, and I just love that uh, you know people are still making this kind of music. You know what I mean? They're still doing it. It's a... You know, moving forward, this is the future uh, of heavy music. So, uh, anyway, let's go and pay some bills real fast. And uh, I want to thank our sponsors. Uh, I want to thank Rockbox uh, Workout in Frisco. Uh, great gym. I go there and do my kickboxing when when we could. And I look forward to being able to return there as soon as it's safe to do so. want to thank Blackstone Labs. Uh, that's where I they supply me with my, my whey protein and my amino acids and to kind of keep... Uh, keep me you know going keep me rocking and uh also to belvita snacks uh where you can find that in all your breakfast aisle there um also sensible who provide me with my kickboxing gloves uh and helping me to stay you know kicking ass so anyway want to thank all of our great sponsors again want to make sure that you're checking us out we are on twitter under tricky kid and the number two that's the at symbol and tricky kid number two we're on Facebook under Tricky Kid Radio Podcast. My alter ego, DJ Tricky Kid, also has a page on Facebook, as well as Instagram under DJ Tricky Kid. Um, lots of great episodes. Like I said, we've in the past, if you want to dig into it, we've had you know Joey uh, Belladonna and Frank Bello from Anthrax. Um, lots of uh, lots of the rock. If you want to even go even further, we've got uh, the guys from Diamond Head, who were great influences, of course, of all those guys. So, uh, if you like it, uh, the metal, especially the thrash metal, you've come to the right place. So, and now you've come to the right place to hear about Murder in the Front Row. Uh, so let's get Adam Dubin on. Is uh, the director of the current film Murder in the Front Row, which is about the rise of thrash metal in the Bay Area. And uh, Adam, welcome to Tricky Kid Radio. Nice to be here. Thank you. Okay, so let's go and jump in. I just saw the film, and I wanted to ask you, so you have a long kind of history with the band Metallica. Can you talk for our listeners that don't know that? Um, they probably saw a, a year and a half in the life of Metallica way back during the recording of the Black Record. How did you get involved in all that? Um, okay, I was... Um, so. I- been making films uh, since I got out of, you know, in college, got out of college, and uh, went right into uh, what I loved, which was, you know, making films with music, you know, anything that, that seemed to be my uh, my thing, and I loved it, and so uh, I was making music videos for a lot of bands, um, and uh, much of it turned out to be, you know, for heavy metal bands, and at the time that was, that was pretty um, popular. Um, you had Headbangers Ball on MTV, right? And uh, so I was working on on this kind of stuff around the West Coast, um, and around LA and, and uh, San Francisco. Even though I'm, I'm a New York, you know, a Brooklyn-based filmmaker, but um, yeah, that's where the scene was happening at the time. I, I was in California for a lot of that time, and you know, I get a call that that um, uh, which was pretty amazing that that. Metallica was going back into the studio to um, make what would be their fifth album. It didn't have a title yet and, and uh, anything like that, but they might be thinking or considering filming something, and they were you know, considering 
maybe having somebody you know document what was going on there, and would I meet with them to discuss? And I was like, well, yeah, of course. You know, I mean, it was quite amazing. Yeah. But I, but you know you don't you don't like get too excited yet because <laughs> right. you, know, you realize you know you're, you're, you know, this could easily not happen. And at that point, Metallica was very famous for not filming things. Right. For sure. This. Yeah. They released exactly one video called Water. Called One. <laughs> and, and right. And they they didn't and they didn't care. They didn't care about MTV. They didn't care about anything. Um, and they were quite successful. They had built their their fan base on the road, and so they were. Uh, you know, very much insulated from needing to make videos for MTV or, or even caring about that. And uh, so, I, you know, I went in to, to meet with them and that first day, and this was like in the fall of 1990. I went in and I met with Lars and James first. I, I didn't meet anybody else. And it was very clear from the outset that um, Lars was interested in filming something. James was not interested in, in filming. I can, I can understand James, you know, I mean, it's like, you know, you're going to have cameras in the studio now and, and, you know, with lights and everything. I mean, he was, he was absolutely not interested in this. And, and, you know, and right there I could see and feel the creative tension between, you know, Lars and James, which is the, the sort of some of the fuel that's in the engine of Metallica. Right, that's right. The only tension, but, it's, it's there, and it was there actually more strongly, I think, at that time years ago. Um, how, and how, just, how did you know, that, it just went on, yeah, that's what happened. How did you land on the radar, though? I mean, like, I mean, like, wh- why would you have gotten that call? Okay, I mean, I had done a few things at that time, but here's actually what it was. I was, I was working at a place called Propaganda Films. Um, Propaganda Films at the time was like, like kind of the place of, of, directors, uh, you know, uh, representing directors of, of, like, all kinds of music projects and everything. I was very much the, 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 the you know, like, the low guy on the totem pole. <laughs> right. Guys guys like David Fincher were there making, mm. like, the big multi-million dollar music videos. Wow. Cool to see all this going on. And there was, like, a whole, you know, bunch of guys. Anton Fuqua, who's, like, a very big action director now. Um, a lot of guys were, were, you know, working. A lot of amazing people. They sort of needed a director who, you know, the, uh, uh, David Fincher is not going to go into a studio for four months to, to document the making of a record. Yeah. Um, they needed somebody who had, you know, rock and roll credibility, but not, you know, not sort of the, at a certain level where it's not going to happen. So the, the thing that I had was I was, I'd done the Beastie Boys music videos. That was like my first music videos. I, at the time we didn't, you know, again. And we're definitely going to get. Gonna we're definitely going to get to get to those because I got to ask you about that for sure at one no point. No problem. No problem. But you don't know something's going to be like that. I mean, that's just crazy. Yeah. What that turned into, but you don't know it at the time. You just <laughs> go out to do the best thing you can do. But I've been working around um, uh, with a lot of heavy metal bands that are not as famous now, but are certainly bands that are that are uh, you know were known at the time. Band like Wolfsbane, the band like Trouble. Um, and these, you know, I, I didn't direct a, a, a Danzig music video, but I worked on a lot of stuff that Danzig was filming at the time. Um, I, on different days, I could be, just be doing camera or sound, whatever I had to do. I see, and, okay. Um, so I was in this, this kind of, you know, environment of, of heavy metal. So my credentials were good. I, I'd done some music videos for a band called Warrior Soul. Right. And, uh, they were on the same, um, uh, management company at, at, um, 
as as Metallica, and uh, they were on Geffen Records, same time as like Guns N' Roses and Nirvana. So I was sort of right in the middle of this mix. So it's not impossible that I would get the call, but I have to say I was fortunate because there's there was a few other directors they could have got the call for sure. And um, uh, but I got the call, and uh, and I went in a, and I met with. You know, Lars and James, and, and obviously, I, I, you know, I came out to tell the tale. Uh, it was it was definitely on the fence for a little while, but they, you know, they weren't sure if they wanted to do this. But I think I kept true to what I told them, even in the beginning, which was, I'll just be a fly on the wall. I'm not going to look to interfere with what you're doing, and as much as possible, I don't want to be noticed. Right, right. Well, and that was pretty much what I, I endeavored to do, because I don't want to change what's happening here. I want... You don't want to compromise it, right? Exactly. Yeah, just go do what you're doing. Well, you must. Out of the way. Well, you must have done a hell of a job, Adam, because they keep hiring you. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, it, it is pretty amazing. I'm, I'm very lucky that, like, over the years, they've first, you know, they make a lot of film projects on their own these days quite well with the team they have. But for certain special projects, I've been called back, and and um, and it's great, and and it's it's been a, a fabulous relationship. Well, reason reason why reason why I ask that because because to bring people because we're going to get into murder in the front row here the reason why a lot of our listeners are are filmmakers because I'm also a filmmaker and we're now we're currently in production on a documentary on the band Kings X you might you might remember from I do remember Kings X yes and so we're about we're about forty percent in I that's, that might be a little generous but uh, <laughs> but so so a lot of people that listen or have been following our. Uh, journey with this and everything else and one of the things they always ask is you know the, what we call the get so you know that as a filmmaker you know yeah. like the people yeah. you want to get so one thing that people were really uh, blown away by um, was because you know because James doesn't do a lot of of these if any of these types of things and so I think that the, the thing that first struck people that may not have known your background was man he got every member of Metallica including James Every surviving uh, member of uh, Slayer, and no offense to the other guys, but really the the, the two guys that that matter, I guess, the most uh, in terms of Megadeth. So, yeah. so if somebody that doesn't know your bona fides or your background with Metallica, the first thing that they're saying is, "How the fuck did this guy get James to do this?" And the answer is, you yeah. had a thirty-year relationship with him. Yeah, I, I, you know, I guess. Something twenty five plus years of keeping my nose clean, you know, doing by <laughs> them, never asking for for stuff, you know what I mean, and right. in, in like an hour away, and I, you know, I earned that, and I played my one chip in the game, and I played it on that time, and and even then, I was like, um, I, I my, you know, I, I kind of was like, let's, um, I. I'm not going to go to those guys first. I spoke to management. I was like, I'm going to undertake this documentary, but I'm, you know, we, was, we, we both agreed. I mean, it was, it was like a mutual agreement with me and management. They were like, yeah, you know, the guys will fix you, but they're not going to be the first. Like, like, don't come to them first and then make it like we've got Metallica. Now go get other interviews. Right. That was definitely not the idea. Um, and I didn't want it to be because I wanted to talk to a lot of other people before I sat with Metallica because I wanted to bring that to the, to the interview. So my vision for the film was that if, at, at a certain point, that, you know, it's based on a book with, with all these fabulous pictures. Well, if you go back early enough in time, in the book, as the book shows in the photographs, 
James Hetfield was not really famous. He was not any more famous than the, than the ten kids standing around him watching them. So right. It, it's you know that's what interested me. That's what I wanted to go back to, and so I wanted to interview those supporters of the scene, which of course they're they're in, and even in the edit room, I gave them you know a lot of time. A lot. I think a lot of other you know uh, filmmakers would have approached it and said, okay, you know, put the big names up front, and, you know. And, and, let them talk a lot because that sells the picture. I wasn't as interested in that. I, I, I was interested in telling, you know, yeah. let, let them tell the story when they tell the story, but it's just as interesting in my mind anyway that, that all these other people built this this scene with them. And, and so... I couldn't. I couldn't agree more. I, I think it was smart that that Harold and and Lou and Brian Lou, who wrote the book "Murdered in the Front Row," that you turned into it. I think it was smart and enjoyable during the film that you gave them not only equal billing but probably even a majority of the time because, like you said, that 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 to me is what's interesting. Yes. Yeah, it is. And it, 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 you know, I felt because in my mind, I felt like at a certain point you you, you don't have. You know, I mean, Metallica's a great band, and, and you know, they, they would have found some, some success, but it, it's like, when they got to the Bay Area, it was like like rocket fuel for that band. Oh, That's yeah. What they needed was this boost, and, and I mean, the, the proof is, is right in the fact that they get to the Bay Area, and within, like, you know, six months or eight months, half the band is Bay Area band. You know, <laughs> yeah. They get Cliff, they recruit Kirk, and they're off to the races, and and so it's you know I think that's really what tells you about the Bay Area. So so it's really like, well, what's going on in the Bay Area that they would recruit? They, you know, they went there and they moved there to recruit these two, you know, next level musicians. I'm, I'm just going to call them next level because you don't find them then and there. You don't find a, a you know a Cliff Burton just anywhere. Well, no, Kirk Hammett. Yeah. I think one of the most underdocumented parts of the Metallica story is that the quantum leap that the band went from kill them all to ride the lightning yes. that only happened because of Kirk and Cliff. You know what I mean? You don't make right. that quantum leap in 10 months unless you have injected just this this amazing new ingredient into the band. And so I always kind of felt like that. that I mean, I, I know Cliff gets a lot of uh, bona fides, and it's unfortunately, uh, you know, posthumously, of course, but I've always, I always kind of felt like that's a very under-told part of the story. But I will say this. One thing that I thought you did such a great, great job of that I loved so much sure. was my favorite thing in the whole film is Kirk's enthusiasm. And his, yeah. his pride for this... And even his, not to give any spoilers, but he, he does, you know, of course, there's a point where he gets emotional. Um, yeah. He is, because, you know, normally, like, when you see Kirk, and he's, like, a nice, soft-spoken guy. He starts the movie with, posers must die. And it just, <laughs> for, for him, it's like Exodus is kind of, because this is, I mean, you know, it's about the Bay Area, but this is really giving Exodus their long overdue thing. And I'm, I'm so yeah. proud of you for doing that. Oh, well, thank you so much. It's like, I, you know, I mean, I set out to, to, to show that, that, I mean, look, I was fortunate. I mean, Kirk, Kirk came to, to really, you know, I've interviewed him a few times. I've been lucky, but it's like, I've never interviewed him like that. I mean, he was like, he was like coming in ready to tell this story. Yeah. He jumped right off. That literally is the first thing that happened in the interview. It was like when uh, I was starting up the interview, as I do, and I was kind of, you know, I'm a little more low-key. I let people kind of warm up. 
no way, man. He just, as soon as they clapped the sticks, he said, whoa, well, you know, he like saw me about to launch my first question. He's like, wait a minute. And he did that posters must die thing in, in memory of Paul Bailoff. And, you know, we were, we were running from there. Um, yeah, I, I, see, I really saw it as that. I mean, Kirk is, is such a, uh, a sweet and humble guy that he, you know, Look, a lot of accounts of, of, of Kirk's story, it almost is like, you know, Kirk was in some other band, and, you know, his life really begins when he joined Metallica. And I saw it as, like, a different thing that he didn't just, he just wasn't a part of Exodus. I mean, he started Exodus. Yeah. More to the point, what he did was he started the band because he wanted to play with people, so he started turning on other people, like, like to, he went and found music and then was like, hey, this is great, and this is it. Now, people usually see that role like for like Lars is clearly somebody who who like is excited about something and then like go get a bunch of other people excited about it yeah but if before Kirk ever knew who Lars was or who James was he was getting his own band going and getting people like started I mean John Marshall tells the story he goes he goes look it was Kirk getting excited about music and getting us all together to 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 play and, and, and play this kind of music and turning this on to new bands and right. music. That sounds a lot like Lars, doesn't it? But it's not. It's Kirk. Yeah. So, it's... This is... I just feel like it's Kirk's movie, man. I just feel like it's finally, yeah. you know, this movie isn't about Lars for once or James. And no disrespect to those guys, but finally, huh. and it's funny that you how you mentioned how you didn't want to, of course, do the thing of like, hey guys, we got Metallica. Of course, you're not going to want to be in our movie. But I got to be honest, Adam, I can't see you making this movie without Kirk. So, so yep. you, you would have had to have almost have had to think to have gone to him first. Yeah, I, well, I. You know, I went to I went to management. I I, I work in the same way. I, again, like I said, I, it was it was the one time in all these years I've asked for, for something. Right. And uh, if they would sit for me, I you know, what, by the time I came back again, I had about twenty five or so, maybe more interviews in the can. One of which was was Slayer, and um, and I was and they knew who I had too. I sent the list down. I mean, it wasn't just anybody I mean they, they they knew the names and I'm talking about the people who aren't necessarily famous but are well known you know Brian Liu and Ron Quintana I had Ray Burton had sat for me the wonderful Ray Burton right. of Cliff. and um, and you know I, I mean I really had like a, like a, a pretty amazing list and so it was just like it, it wasn't so much like them saying you know this you know whether this will happen it was just like okay let's start to schedule something now in that i'm very fortunate I, yeah you know people probably wait years to try and get interviews and again they the guys in the band knew me so they and they knew the project they knew brian Lou, they knew the book yeah and they they wanted to to sit for me so it was you know and and more importantly i think was what i developed over that time of interviewing people um, I, let's see. By that time, I sat with Metallica. I've been filming for a year and a half, so it's nothing, nothing quick. No, sorry, almost a year. Sorry, almost okay. a year. In 2017, they sat for me. So they they knew I was kind of doing it the right way. That I'm, I'm not. I'm, they, the most important thing was they know I'm not trying to make a behind the music, <laughs> right, know, something right, like right. like that's looking to talk about. I don't know, you know, salacious details of nonsense and everything. I don't care about that. I'm there about the music and the and the scene and really what's portrayed in the book, yeah, in the photos. And so that's what kind of got everybody going. I mean, look, look at 
James Hetfield. I mean, he was one. I, I, I would usually do my interviews with people, anybody, famous or not. And then at the end, I would bring out like two or three photos from the book, maybe four, that were like I thought were significant. I printed them up, put them on cards, and look at what James did. I mean, he held up the one of Debbie Abono. Yeah. He held up and talked, but he held it like almost near his heart. Yeah. Know? I mean, that's like that's like amazing. No, like, it is amazing. That I mean, he did that. Yeah. Some people, some people just looked at him, put him down, and then talked. But he held that one up, and 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 that was, you know, that was great. So I think, I mean, I I, I noticed something that would happen when I when I gave people the photos. Anybody doesn't matter who they were. They almost in front of my eyes got young again. You know what I mean? I yeah. see it in their eyes. They they would become that eighteen year old that they were. In that photograph, but you can watch them. Day. You can watch them tra- transform into that, and that yes. was that was so smart of you to, to to bring those photos to do that to transport them, like yeah. to do that. That was that was because because like you said, I felt like a lot of people also had their own motivations. Like I feel like that Lars was excited that finally Brian and 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 Ron and that whole gang that a lot of people may right. not know, kind of like the Old Bridge Militia, of course, in New Jersey and all that. Or sure. finally, kind of going like, look, these guys really, and you know, and, and I understand the whole the whole get thing. Like I said, Brian Slagle's in our film. Charlie Benante is going to be in our King in our King's X film. Yeah. So I, I get all how that works. But like you said, like I love when you see, like for you as a filmmaker to watch, your job is to you know make them come alive. And I think that it was important for James to have Debbie get the right. Uh, you know, so did you already plan on having like a little chapter about Debbie in the film, or did you do it because of what he did? No, I I, um, I scripted the storyline I wanted to follow out. Um, okay, I know a lot of documentaries are made that you know people go out, they film a ton of stuff, and then they get back to the studio trying to figure out what they're gonna, you know, what's the right. other half that they want to tell. I sat with Brian and Harold for a couple of games actually in uh, early 2016 and they, I just listened to them talk I just talked to them and, and I had made notes pages and pages of notes and I knew that from the beginning of the scene and, and these young people coming together and you know Exodus being one of the formative bands to the unfortunate death of Cliff Burton I knew by that point I had 90 minutes of movie I had plenty of movie I didn't right. I, wasn't, I wasn't sure when I sat down if I was going to have to cover this scene all the way into the 90s or whatever and I didn't I, I knew I had enough story there so I then knew I wanted to tell certain stories I opened the book there's this woman who's obviously older than you know the rest of the people in the scene she's definitely like old enough to be the mother of the, the, the people in the scene Right. who is this person yeah. I didn't know her but when I started to find out who she was and I realized how important she was. Um, and, and But it's not just important. How cool and interesting is it? Yeah, this, totally. Oh, this was this mom. This, you know, I think at some point she was a grandmother. And she's in this insane, you know, environment of young, mostly male kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. But she, she would sometimes wade into mosh pits and break up fights and stuff. You know, it's like, I mean... Who is this person? Right. That to me is interesting. You know, that's fascinating. And, and then a character like Wes Robinson, who uh, who booked and ran Ruthie's Inn. I mean, what an amazing character, this this jazz aficionado who, in in that, with a background in jazz, could hear something in thrash metal that he felt needed to be heard. And I kept booking thrash bands, you know, when, when it was like, most people think 
But I, I love that too that you were included that because that was the parallel I was going to say was like like what the hell was Debbie you know fostering right. these people and then they even had a home with the most unlikely guy with Wes at Ruthie's Inn oh and and those people are tearing this place apart. I mean, there's just the whole thing has such a huge heart and yeah. it's such a fun world and 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 the movie is just so damn fun because you you feel that beating heart in it and then i also am of course obviously you know uh, you know somewhat biased because i mean i live for this stuff like i mean it, this i lived all this stuff too i was 12 when master of puppets came out was there at the beginning so i mean i've lived this my whole life but for me though i wanted to ask you this was it a few things that were interesting um so you never, you know, Gary Holt is usually pretty unflappable, and and to see him kind of, you know, uh, kind of bend, bend the knee, as it were. Who whose idea was it to go to Bailoff's grave? Okay, so the, the that was like the let's let's get out of the studio segment. Um, here's how that happened. So I had not met Gary Holt, but I again I, I came. I came with a lot of credibility because I'd already interviewed like a lot of the Bay Area people that, you know, Gary's still friends with to this day. And, you know, he already knew that I was going to, I was telling the story honestly um, from a number of people. So, so I interview him and and that's how Slayer fell into line. Like once I went to interview him, all the other guys like, like just came into it. Um, And then I just keep going and making the film. and, And by the time, I, you know, I, I got around, then we got up to 2017, I'd filmed um, uh, Metallica uh, by that point, and I I had said to him that, I talked to Gary like a few more times, by then I'd, I'd met him at other things, and you know, we started to not, we're not, you know, just a little friendlier, I mean, I'm, right. I'm friends with him now, but I mean, you know, not close friends, I mean, not like Brian Lewis, but you know, he understood that I'm, I'm doing this right, that I'm, I'm really treating, remember, the scene to all of these people is a cherished childhood memory. Yes. It's, it's cherished. It's not just, it doesn't necessarily their happiest times. A lot of people are going through tough times, but, but it's cherished memory. So you've got to treat that with the utmost respect. Totally. And so, and they knew I was. So at some point I said to him, I'd really love to go do some walking around with you and film you guys. But it was really, it's a filmmaker's technique also to try and, not just have all these people sitting in a, in a chair Absolutely. You know, in front of you. So I just felt that the guys that were interesting, this was me. I mean, I could have done it with like Brian and Harold, for instance, but I found, I in my mind, I felt that the Exodus story was so central to this. Look, if I could get Carl Cabot to walk around, you know, the East Bay with me, I would have, but that wasn't going to happen. So I, I just was kind of like, you know, they, I forget what it was, they were rehearsing, they, they were together for a reason, they were rehearsing for a, an Exodus uh, tour or something, so I just asked Gary and Tom, who are, who are very cool guys, very nice guys, and, and just said, look, will you, can we do something before you like go to, to rehearse that day? So I, and Gary was up for it, that was the main thing, is that Gary, by that point, knew me, understood me, and was up for it. Right. So I, I said, I'll meet, you know, let's meet, I mean, I figured the a best case scenario is I'll meet him outside Ruthie's in, and that'll be some cool footage. You yeah. know what I mean? It's it'd be like doing like something about the Ramones and having them in front of CBGBs. You know, you'd exactly. Get that footage. So we go and we meet there, but they're the ones who who kind of pick the other places. 
I didn't know where Bailoff's grave was, and I prob- I might not have, you know, had the guts to like even suggest it because that's very, that's deeply personal. So, yeah. Um, I just, you know, they, it was really Gary and Tom like picked it. They said, well, let's first go to Alvarado Park where where we used to, um, you know, play these open air gigs of which there's thankfully some photographs exist. For sure, and we did that. And of course, that's where we got that great moment of the, the, the that ends the movie with the groundskeeper. You know, the, the, he's like one of the guys in the parks department. He keeps the grounds rolling up on us. So I'm like, oh man, you know, here it comes. We don't have permits. This guy's going to be on my case. You're a filmmaker, so you get it. You oh, know? totally, and, totally. You know, like cam- film cameras and the whole thing. And I'm like, oh man, now now we're in some kind of trouble. And instead, he gets out. And he's a fan. You know, I mean, you can't write that. That's Dude, awesome. We screamed. At the end of that scene, because again, as filmmakers, we know exactly what you're talking about. We were just yeah. in Balboa Park outside of Van Nuys with Doug yeah. Pennick and and you know they're trying to close down the park. And again, we don't have any fucking permit, right? But no. th- but but those guys weren't like, oh, King's X, great. No, they were like, hey, get your shit and get the hell out of here. So oh. so when we saw th- that those guys show up and go. Exodus, I've been a fan forever. I was like, dude, the, the document of gods were smiling on you guys that yeah, day. I love it. You, I'm glad you get it. Man. <laughs> I was like, oh, here it comes, and he's going to raid on the cops. And the whole, you know, I mean, I, look, I've been, I'm, I'm a documentary filmmaker, which means you're a girlfriend filmmaker. Which That's means, right. You've been thrown out of more parks and subways and every other thing. <laughs> oh, my God, totally. And, 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 um, and hopefully you got your shot at least before you got thrown out. I, I, and, I did, thankfully. Yeah, that's what you do. You, you, you run and gun. So, yeah, we went there, and then the last place was, was Bellas Grave, and, and, and I was like, oh, wow, you know, I was like, I was like, that's, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, it's right there on Campbell. Right. They, they, they're, they're visibly moved by it, and uh, that was just amazing. It didn't didn't really take that long all in. We just went and did it, and, uh, I've, you know, I've gotten very efficient at being a filmmaker over the years, and they were actually kind of surprised when I said I'm kind of done. They were like, "Oh!" And they looked at each other like, "Hey, we can go get lunch." <laughs> they went off to get lunch, so it was. Um, well, I love that scene really of. Nice. I love that scene of them walking up the hill with the dog, and, and that was. Uh, yeah. So, what decision, like, like, what struck you about that? That whenever you're, I guess, I think you guys are leaving the the grave yeah. site, and no, that was actually the park. But oh, yeah, the park. Yeah. And they're yeah. just kind of walking up the, and you just kind of got ahead of them. And oh, yeah. so when you're there doing that, is it just you and an, and an audio guy, or are you doing everything? Um, no, I, I go out now with. Uh, I mean, there have been many days when it's where I, I'm the filmmaker, I, and, and maybe I have an audio guy, or sometimes I'm even just myself. But, right. Um, in this case, I had um, uh, my very able uh, camera cameraman. I had a, I have an excellent. Bay Area crew, and so I had um, Eli Adler and and, uh, and, and, uh, and Lou Wisks, my sound man, and I just was like, we had walked down that path to get into the park. It was like it was like I was down a slope, so I already knew it was there. So when we got all done, and this is after the, the, the you know the groundskeeper came, and and we had that moment and everything. And of course, I grant a sign of release with him. I got it because I already knew that was gold. Oh and, God, yes. And so then we've just, you know, we kind of, they, they spoke about the park and everything and what they did there. And we're leaving, but I knew there was just going to be this walk up and out. And I, I said to them, um, I told my crew, I said, I said actually to Gary and Tom, I said, can you just wait a minute? And they were like, yeah. And I was like, I want to get up there and get my crew up there so we can film you coming back up. And they're like, all right, cool. So, you know, it wasn't, 
I mean, I can't set up what they're going to do or say, but I mean, I, I could just say, give me a minute to get my crew up the hill. It was just was that much. You know? I've, so I've I loved it. Totally. Well, yeah. I want to ask you this though too. Was it because I, I like you said it's so deeply personal? I literally couldn't see you saying, "Hey guys, let's go to Bailoff's grave." I mean, it was something they would have to do. But what struck me though is that Gary mentioned how he was, of course, not only at uh, Paul's uh, funeral, but he was one of the Paul bearers. Uh, yeah. But but he, it seemed like when he was, I don't want to give anything, anything too much away, but uh, it seemed like. He hadn't been there since. Did he happen to mention, or did you think to ask him when was the last time he had he had been there, or had he been there I, since the funeral? Yeah, I, I remember. I remember him saying something. I'm not sure if that, this got in on camera. I mean, not on camera, but uh, if we used it or not. But I think he says, "Like I don't get up here as often as I'd like to." I think he says that, and it's in the film. Okay. Um, but I knew he said it to me. He's like he, you know, I mean, he like all of us. He's, you know, you get busy. He doesn't live in the same area anymore as, 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 you know, as where that is in that part of the East Bay. Um, I know he lives further out from the city because I remember he had to like drive, drive in for this rehearsal. Um, and so I think, you know, like, like any of us, I mean, you know, you sort of, when you get reflective about a friend, we get busy in life and, and sure. sometimes you don't, you don't spend that moment. I, I mean, I think they lost with him all the time. As, as for the same sure. Way I think that he's with, Kirk is the same thing as with like Cliff Burton is alive with with all of them, you know, it, it, you know very clearly by how they they talked about it, and um, without question, I just think you know it's, it's like you don't always get to visit someone's gravesite, but I, I still think you reflect, you think about them, you reflect on them. So in that case, yeah, I think he was he was kind of feeling it a little bit there as well, and it's just you know he's standing there with Tom, yeah, yeah. I well, didn't know anything about that he was a Paul Bearer. I didn't know anything. I mean, he everything said there. It's so it's so great. Well, I, I just feel like the takeaway. It felt like that you know. I, I guess Bailoff's been dead almost twenty years now, and the takeaway when I saw the film that it just really seemed like that this was his first time back there since. That's just what it felt like at least. So, uh, but moving on to something a little little less morbid, more fun is one thing I love so much is that. Obviously, Adam, you love this because at some point you were like, this book has to be a movie and I'm the guy to make it happen. Walk walk me through that a little bit. All right. Um, I, I met, I, through my association with Metallica, I met Brian Lou a few times. Um, I really liked him. Right? We just got on with each other for whatever reason. He, he liked the stuff I had done and... and uh, we had each written a piece for So What magazine, which is Metallica's magazine. We, you know, so we kind of knew each other a bit, and I and I understood, I fully understood who he was in their world. That he was like that. There was this core group of early fans yeah. and supporters, and I knew he was one of them. I knew, it, I, 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 as yet did not know him, but I, I knew who Harold was. I knew who Quintana was. Um, there was there was this core group of people. Um, I. I sort of came later into that that whole thing. So I'm backstage at a Metallica show in 2012. It was when I was filming uh, uh, behind-the-scenes stuff for Metallica when they were making their their film, which be, which the film which became Metallica uh, through the Never. Right. And I run into Brian Lou, who's there, and he completed the book. The book now was a reality. It was there, and he had a copy, and he. We talked for a while. I actually even put him, did a bit of an interview with him. 
I was like, oh, I have a camera crew set up, and I have Brian Luke. This is perfect, yeah. you know. So I, I got him on camera, and um, and then I, you know we just we were talking. He gave me a copy of the book, and I loved it. I mean, it was that book that sits on your nightstand for forever. Totally, it's, it's just there, and you look at it all the time. You just go through it, and I just knew I could see these pictures. I said, like, "Damn, these pictures are unreal." I can't even believe somebody didn't make a documentary of this, but if you did. This is where you, this is where you go, right? And more to the point, the one thing I knew, whether it's me or anybody else who's who's going to make this documentary, you need Metallica in it. And yes. they're 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 the big get, of course, because they're Metallica, and and um, I could I could really see, but I kind of understood that it was like, you know, if you approach it from this way, that it's it's you know kind of a lot more Kirk than it is than than what you would think than, than Lars and James in that, in that regard and so I really wanted to approach it like that because there's pictures in the book of Kirk when he's in Exodus and I'm like that's really interesting you know and, and he's opening for them and stuff it's just it's just amazing the amount of talent that was happening at any moment I know stages, isn't it crazy you know? it, it, right I mean and this is 1982 or 83 and you've got Kirk and Gary Holt and David Stane and Lars and James and Cliff Burton. <laughs> yeah. It's all like, it's right there in front of you. But guys. Alex Skolnick and Chuck Billy and, you know, what, right. what, what we all would call, well, you know. Those guys were like in the audience at the time. Yeah, right. right. It's like really, to these shows, it really is insane what's going on. And and then later on, you know, you get like, also an audience in those shows is like, you know, you guys like Phil Demo and Rob Flynn. Yeah. And I'm like, all these guys are amazing and, and became, you know, amazing musicianship. So, Really, you know, it, it, it was just like I saw this book and I just felt like I, if I get a chance to do it, I can do it. But still, it's still in all a few years went by, and I, you know, and other things happen in life and whatever. I mean, you don't just you know get to do it right away. For sure. But I approached I approached Brian in early 2016, and I was like, I called him up and I was like, I think I have the wherewithal to do this thing, and can we meet and talk about it? You know, we talked on the phone a bunch, but it, it really gelled when I. Um, I had my producer Jack Ulick, who's we've been producing stuff since since um, uh, year and a half of life of Metallica. We've been working together for all these years, and and I really uh, kind of just said to him, I said, "Let's go." I said, "It's worth the investment. Let's go to Cal- to uh, California. Let's go to San Francisco Bay Area, and meet with Brian and Harold, and we'll talk." Because still, in all, as much as Brian liked me, and and you know, trusted me to a degree. I mean, that he that he liked my work. He needed to trust, and Harold needed to trust that I was going to tell the story the right way. Yeah, that it wasn't going to just be the Metallica story. It wasn't just going to be about rock stars. That it that it was this whole thing of this, you know, how this scene got going. Now that's as it turns out, I, the story I wanted to tell was exactly that kind of story. Yeah. and and that worked with what they wanted to do, and so hence we struck an agreement, and it's been a. You know, great. I mean, we never had arguments. There's nothing to right. argue about. We, we were just on the same track, pulling for the same cause, very much like the way the scene itself was. The movie became an outgrowth of the scene. I mean, it was made almost with the same kind of camaraderie as the scene itself. It's and you can an fe- amazing thing. And you can feel that. And I, I'll, I'll say this as well: is that somebody that's on the outside, even though I am, a, I'm a filmmaker, but somebody that's just not obviously it wasn't a part of that scene. That's you know, on from the outside. What do I, as a fan, want to see? As a fan of that book, what am I hoping to see with the movie version is exactly what I saw. I love it. Yeah. I thought it was fantastic. Thank you. I, I mean, here, here's the thing. I felt like 
I felt like if you want performance and stuff, you you're gonna go elsewhere. You're gonna look elsewhere and find performance of these bands and stuff. You can find it, you know, in a lot yeah, of places. Yeah, for sure, right. You want to see Slayer play? You know, there's all these shows that you can watch and everything. Um, so for me, it was more um, a thing of like, let me tell. I want these stories. I want I want their reflections on this, and and I want to get like, and you know, uh, not, I didn't want to dredge up emotion, but I wanted them to be like heartfelt, and you know, and I got it. I mean, it was, it was that's what I, I was interested in. So. I mean, some people think that when they watch Murder in the Front Row, they're going to see, like, a lot of performance. There's actually not very much performance in it, because it's not needed. I really It's not needed, yeah. More. Yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, if you want that, great, I get it. Go go find it. Any, you know, it's, it's available. But what you can't get elsewhere is sort of these folks recollecting these times, and I felt that was very significant, and I wanted to, to bring that out. And I'll add that... Um, uh, some people ask, like, oh, is there going to be a Murder from Front Row Part 2? And in a sense, there is. Um, we we edited so much material that, you know, once we made the film, I really didn't want, like, a lot of, you know, I wanted to put as much stuff out there. And so we made the, the movie's 92 minutes. On the DVD, we included another 92 minutes of all these different various scenes. Um, they weren't really scenes cut from the movie. They were just, like, I already knew that they, they wouldn't fit, but that doesn't mean they don't fit anywhere. And that means... I wanted that in there, and I yeah. thought it would be, be fascinating to put it in. So we, you know, we I think we have more bonus than, than most people <laughs> on anything. But it's kind of it almost serves as like a, a, another piece of the movie because we made it with the same style as as the movie. So well, I'll have to get my hands on that then because I've got the, of course I've got the press screener, so I'll have to get my hands on the actual physical yeah. one to see all that great extra footage. One story that I I was a little not confused by, but I'm somebody that feels pretty confident that i know the metallica story pretty well it's i've had a long time to hear it and, and everything else but yeah. one thing that was interesting was that you know lars is from denmark he comes to la and you know kind of you know does his whole thing to kind of get it together even though right. whatever but he's, he starts by saying almost very early in the film about how he was in like golden gate park or something yeah. up in san francisco and in my mind the first time that lars ever stepped foot in san francisco was when they all went up there to join the band or maybe go up there to do a show with cliff why do you know why he was up there He's up there because he's Lars Ulrich. He, he's like, he's like an amazing character. He, he um, uh, you know, was 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 clearly like confident and fearless at a young age, and he was interested in. I, I'm not sure if it was something to do with his tennis or whatever, but but um, the family did have spend some time up in Berkeley also. And Lars, being Lars, went out looking for music and found this guy, Rich Birch, who's, you know, part of the film and right. not with us any longer. But uh, he, Rich Birch was like a, another one of these people who was like a, a, a centralized character with like a lot of people. He brought people together. And so Rich Birch was kind of the guy who got them, you know, Lars knew him, so he knew Quintana. Quintana and Lars are like cooking up ideas to like you know one of the ideas was for maybe a magazine or something called Metallica, which obviously became the band name and the magazine right. became Metal Mania. But yeah, Lars is in touch with the same kind of people that Kirk's kind of in touch with. You know, it's really and it's before the band is yeah, so, it's not even a band yet. Right. So that is I found really amazing. And again, 
what does that tell you about the Bay Area? You know what I mean? Yeah. was cooking over there. You know? Yeah, it was, man. It was like a magnet attracting these young people that, you know, who were interested in a certain kind of hard music that was not really, you know, you had to work pretty hard to hear this music. Like, it was like you had to go find your either your, your yeah. tape traders or go find these albums in the, in the backs of record bins. And that's something I think a lot of people identify with. And wherever I showed the film, I would talk to people in various parts of the world, and everybody, doesn't matter where they grew up, they identified that that part of finding the music you love and finding the people that also love it, that thing is universal, you know? We I, all did that. I, totally. And, and, and being able to kind of apply that to my own experiences, but I just, I know this stuff so well, and I love it so much that it's going to be kind of hard-pressed at this point for me to really learn something new and that's what I thought was so interesting is I felt like I learned so many things in this right. film uh, I, I loved and again like I said primarily was that whole thing with Lars being in San Francisco prior to even the whole Metallica yeah. even being a band so for you to pull that out I thought that was uh, very 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 special I um I wanted to uh, one more, just one more question about that. I want to ask you one more other thing. Was it uh, whose idea was it? Was it your idea? I thought it was neat that you had them, even though everyone knows who the hell they are. I really liked it that you had them introduce themselves on camera. Yeah, no, that was me. I just was like, you know, I just try to start off. First of all, it, it's it just helps later with with for identification purposes. Though obviously, you know, with James Hetfield, it's a little bit. But it's interesting just to see what, what somebody says. And I'm just trying to start off in an easy way. And then I would talk to them about music, things they loved. You know, I, I pretty much knew that wasn't going to make the film, but it's a good way to break the ice and talk to somebody and just start talking about music. That's what they love. That's what we all love. So it's like, now that became its own segment. One of the DVD segments, the bonus segments, is called Musical Influences because somebody had all these great responses and I said, well, somebody, should, people should see that. It's, it's, it's really cool. Right, right. So, so, I, so I just started up talking about music and, you know, you, you don't know what you use, but sometimes you get something really cool and, and, and you throw it in there. So it was, um, it's just kind of starting my discussion with everybody. And, uh, and I, yeah, that's where Kirk cut me off and said, whoa, whoa, whoa. I was just my guy. Well, I love that because, because again, as a filmmaker, I have my when I interview somebody for, that sits for me, I have them do that just so that I can get a pronunciation and things yeah. like that. But it never occurred to me to to have would have to have kept it in the film, and it became it was just neat hearing James Hetfield say like, "Hi, I'm like you know," and he didn't even right. say it in a in case you didn't. Know. The only person that kind of preempted it was Carrie, but you would kind yeah. of expect that from Carrie King, right? Like. <laughs> Yeah, you know, to me, it, it, it's that's why we put it in there because it's 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 great and unexpected and, and it's but yeah. cool. It's a little defiant and and uh, I think you know, I mean, he's Gary King, man. That's yeah. what you get. I, he, he wants to be interviewed with the dark glasses on. I'm like, that's great. Let's go. You know, it's like he's Gary King. You know? Well, the movie is called Murder in the Front Row. I also love. We had our man. We just had Brian Posehn on the show a few weeks ago, oh, and. Man. And we basically just like my face is still hurting from laughing for an hour, and <laughs> and it's got great narration from Brian Post saying, "If you are a metal fan, you probably already know about this movie, but go get it. It's called Murder in the Front Row. It's the story of the San Francisco Bay Area thrash metal. Uh, is somebody who literally has an insatiable appetite for this. This was such a." God, just a long time coming, appetizing thing. Uh, great to see the guys in Exodus and, and such an important story to be told. And. 
Yo, what's up? This is the infamous serial wax killer, Beastie Boys DJ Assassin, Mix Master Mike, and you're tuned in to my man DJ Tricky Kid. Don't be a clown, don't sleep. Check it out, y'all. Go. I gotta say this. Uh, it's, uh, you know, we lost uh, Adam Yalk uh, eight years ago this week. And uh, we're going to be doing like a little, obviously, we do a tribute show for him every single year. I, I lived in Brooklyn. Awesome. I lived in Brooklyn for about eight years, and I actually was there in Union Square for the very first kind of uh, MCA day, which has now become something yeah. quite organized. But at that time, it was just kind of a fuck. We're all feeling this way. We got to get yeah. it together and organize. And then uh, you know, Horowitz and his wife Kathleen showed up. They just we were, we were sitting oh. in the park. This is just a few weeks after it happened. We're all just shell shocked, and oh, yeah. and I guess Horowitz had heard about it. And him and Kathleen came up, and it wasn't like a suddenly like an in store with you know, right. it was just he, it was just very very special. So spontaneous, yeah. totally. So anyway, I know you probably get asked about this, and you have for thirty five years, but man, I've always have, have imagined like when they go to Rick Rubin's dorm room, and you hear that story. Because um, this week also um, is they they put out they just released a few weeks ago the the Beastie Boys story, uh, yeah. which you can see on Apple Plus. Have you seen it yet? Yeah, I did. I thought it was terrific. Okay, so I was actually at those shows in Brooklyn, and maybe you were too. I was at the first round of when they did it with the book. I didn't go to the one that they obviously filmed for the for the movie. Okay, so I was, it was, it was both are terrific. Yeah, okay. it's amazing. Stuff. Okay, because I was hoping maybe you had, because I kind of wanted to compare, because I wasn't there for the one for the book, but I was at the four shows for uh, the movie. Right. And, and uh, you know, and they, they always talk about that, but you were somebody, you were Rick Rubin's fucking roommate, weren't you? <laughs> I was. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I would be remiss that I finally have uh, the attention of somebody who actually was in that, that dorm room. Right. Just walk... They always talk about how the Beastie Boys would show up and they would hang out, and Rick yep. was this rich kid who had all this equipment, but you actually lived there. Can you paint me just a little bit of a picture of that just for a second? Yeah. So, here, here's first of all, I was there a year even before the, um, the Beastie Boys would have been, maybe in two years actually, before the Beastie Boys were in the room. Although I was. Rick continues to live in the dorm, as did I. We were not roommates, but we were friends, and I would go over there. So, I, yes, I was in his dorm room many times when the Beastie Boys were there, but we were no longer living together. But when we were living together, which was which was my first year and Rick's sophomore year, we I could tell you this. Yes, he was a rich kid from Long Island. Yes, he had the stereo system to beat the band. I mean, it was like, it was the, it was, you know, he had, these huge Sirwin Vega speakers that were up on top of the uh, the, the um, uh, dressers, and every surface was covered with. It, it was his, you know, it was his room. I was living in it, and he took it over before I even got there. So he had two turntables. He had the mixer back then. None of this stuff was connected. You had to wire it yourself. Right, right. And um, and he had all these crates of records, and so he he kind of kept. You know, I mean, he was the most confident kid you could want to meet. He just, you know, he knew what he liked, he knew what he didn't like, and he, he was, you know, he was very confident in, in how to proceed about stuff, and he wasn't afraid to fail, which is an amazing quality, you know, sure. at, at, at that age. I mean, I was 18, he was 19, but it was fascinating, I and mean, I was like a sponge, so I just was absorbing all this music and culture. I mean, I lived, I had grown up on Long Island just outside, 
originally from Brooklyn, then Long Island. So I, I knew Manhattan, you know, life well. I mean, I'd walked around downtown, but walk around with like, it wasn't just Ruben, it was like a bunch of friends that we had, and we'd start going to these, these shows, the punk hardcore shows, James Brown shows, I mean, anything that was, that was of interest. And you start absorbing this culture that is the, the what was happening in New York at that time, if you think about 82, 83, right. is what's really happening, and Rick Rubin recognized it way before everybody else, was that hip-hop at that time was just punk. It was punk by African-American kids. Right, that's right. What, that's what it was. The same DIY and, thing the whole right, bit. Right, And so he, he knew it. It was the same thing, right, because they were getting no respect from radio, no respect, you know, that... Radio didn't want to hear about that stuff. You had to make and sell your own records. Yep. And it was being bought on an underground, mostly underground level. Until basically, you know, things like Run DMC could really break through. With the help of Rick Rubin, of course. So, but he was believing all this way before. Rubin had this way before. So I remember attending um, a, a hardcore matinee. We actually went down to see a band called the, the UK Subs. Right. Now, I've since looked this up to, to know what it was, but... I, I remember it was in that first year I lived at Rick. So we went to see the UK subs at CBGB's. UK subs being a, a punk band from like the original generation of punk in, in, in Britain. And this was now, as I found out, in December of 1982. We go there, and there's a band playing before. I don't think much of it, but it's like a band called The Young and the Useless. And in that band is, I believe, reading their book, it was, you know, my recollection is, is Horowitz was there. Yeah, but they were all there. But when I say they were all there, it was the three guys who became the Beastie Boys. But it was like, there was a whole gang of other people. There was Dave Skilkin, uh, probably Say Adams was there. A lot of other of their kind of people around them. And there was this kind of group. You'd see them in all the hardcore shows. Right. A group of young kind of skate rat kids, you know. And they were there. They were younger than us. They were still in, in high school. And... They were always, they kind of moved as a group, and you'd see them at all these shows, or if you didn't see them at shows, you'd see them on St. Mark's Place, and they were always kind of running around, or, or we'd go to Rat Cage Records, and you'd see them, and they were always around. It wasn't until later that we, we, we met them, and that was when Cookie Puss came out. Okay. And when Cookie Puss came out, Rick was really excited. Rick was very excited, because in his mind, it was exact, and it was, it was exactly what he had been predicting, that, that, white kids would pick up on this, you know, innately black music form of hip-hop and start to adopt it on their own. So he didn't see it as, like, fake white rappers. He saw it as exactly what, what would happen, and of course he was right. I mean, it was exactly what had happened when white kids picked up the blues in England in 1960, you know? Uh, yeah, for sure. Which gives you the Rolling Stones, you know? It's, it's exactly that thing at work. And he was just onto it, and and of course, you know, as Cookie Puss became more successful, they needed a DJ, and that's the story. I mean, they they, you know, it was like one degree of separation to know Rick Rubin by that point, because we were all kind of running in this in this circle, kind of same circle, yeah, yeah. So when I say that I understand scenes, I wasn't in the Bay Area scene, but I understand the Bay Area scene because I understand the Brooklyn, the, the you know, actually not Brooklyn, the Manhattan scene that was going on in downtown. New York and um, 
but, but, was, but paint me a picture cool. though. Are you like are you like laying in like in, in this dorm room trying to find some place to you know to lay down uh, under buried underneath all of Rick's <laughs> gear and then here comes these three crazy uh, yeah. kids that come in. But when they came in, you kind of already knew who they were from the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were, by the time they, they came to the dorm, and Rick would sign them into the dorm, and it wasn't just signing them in, they came with, like, an entourage of, like, their, their buddies, you know? Right. So this gang would show up, and, I mean, later it would just be, like, Ruben and Harvitz hanging out. They, those guys hung out, like, really heavy, and we, we, we'd go out to, you know, to, I don't know, Cozy Superberg sometimes, and, and, you know, I mean, I was around it, too, so it was a guy, George Draculius, who became a record producer. Um, there was a few others, but when, when, when the Beasties would, would come in, yeah, I mean, they were pretty loud and stuff. They were skate kids. They were, yeah, they were right. skate kids. So they were they were tagging up the elevators and stuff like this. I knew who they were because I recognized their tag signs. <laughs> I mean, if I wasn't like there to see them, I knew if they had been in the building because they tagged up the place. And I was once called in and asked like if I if I knew anything about this, basically to to, to rat them out. Of course, of course, I, right? You know, faint. Complete ignorance. I didn't know what, what a spray can was, you know. So um, it was just like they were they were around, and they were. You remember, this is about the time that they were doing rock hard and all this stuff. But rock hard is, an, is exactly an expression of what Rick Rubin was talking about two years earlier to me, at least, and to anyone who's listened. Yeah, was taking you know pieces of other things, which that that was what the, the DJs were doing. So there's nothing new there, but taking it and putting a white group on it. And so taking the, the, the beats from um, from one thing, taking like back in black and, and pulling that and making out of it what you want to and then having white kids rap over it. That's exactly where he he was like kind of on a road to that, you know, well, I've got that I've, road that was the Beasties road. And so, yeah, they were doing it. Well, I kind of felt like the, the, the best, most accurate or honest and comprehensive description of that if you've seen the bc boy stories when 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 mike d is kind of using the uh, the screen behind him to point he goes we thought we would take a little bit of this and then you see rowdy rowdy piper the wrestler and then you think you see like the three stooges and then i think it's probably run dmc i was like in that moment i was like that is the absolute perfect best description I moved to New York in 2006, and in 2007, I was actually uh, talking with Gabby Glazer, who played, of course, with Luscious Jackson, uh, yeah. about managing uh, a solo career for her. Because at that time, I was managing a couple of the guys, that, uh, the drummer from, from Ween, and I had my own little management thing going on and all that. And it was just incredible that I had to meet her at her mom's place, uh, where she was playing Scrabble with her, and she walks me through St. Mark's, to all these yeah. little landmarks that you're talking about, it's like some of those same tags that are that were still there at the time and all that, and yeah. and it's just like I said, I, you could kind of feel that scene. But from a last, and this will be the last thing here, from a yeah, less, yeah, yeah, yeah. from from a less academic standpoint, I just have to ask, man, you were on the set of Fight for Your Right to Party, so we can we can academic this to death but i just want to know like you were somebody who either threw a pie or got hit with a pie so i was a thrower (laughs) that is i uh i threw one at um at at ruben i think uh uh, and uh i threw i threw it a couple of people i was i we set up the shots and and i i was i definitely threw a couple of pies 
um, I didn't want to get hit with pies because I had to work, the, you know, I had to continue to work that day and I didn't want to do it with like, you know, pie all over me. Like <laughs> right. the, the shaving cream. I mean, I just was like, you know, I, I, I was in my clothes and I just had to keep working. It was, you know, it looked like fun. I mean, it was, in, in hindsight, I mean, it was fun making that video. But it was, it was a, we were at a grueling pace. It's not the way you make music videos to do separate shots like that, 65 different setups, separate setups. That's like making a movie. That's a movie-type pace. Actually, more like TV, where you're working at a faster pace. And we kept working, and, and, and so it was actually, you know, at the time, I remember just being kind of very feverish, like, okay, that's done, get to the next shot, get to the next shot, because we had to get through 30 setups plus per day, which if anybody knows filmmaking, especially this is with movie film, not video, it's, it's a lot of setups. It's yeah. a very ambitious thing. It was only because we were such novices at doing it, me and Rick Manello, my co-director, um, the late Rick Manello, the great Rick Manello, and, and, he's, um, and we just kind of attacked it like making a film instead of making a music video and uh, you know and it just became what it is that's why that's ultimately why it's the thing that it is that people remember but i remember just being like like you know going <laughs> at it because we had a lot of work to do in a very little time so um it was hard but great obviously fun. for sure yeah. but, but when you did the no sleep till brooklyn were those shot at the same time or were those two th- different no. separated by two months at least uh, the, the shoots and um or at least six yeah, two months about, and now we, we came back in to do it, and uh, and it was cool. You know, I mean, it was like they, we had we had a, a bit more money. We shot on thirty five for that one, but that's the one I remember that you also started to have like some suits showing up from CBS Records, and they, they, the, making a fight for the party was very pure. No, it was just us, it was right. just us making this thing that nobody thought would, you know, and we all hoped it'd be great. You know, we thought it'd be cool, but but I mean, you can't, you know look for success like that you just try to make the best thing you can and, and again wanting to do an honest job for the BC boys I desperately wanted to do something the best job I could for Rick Rubin and for the Beastie boys that was my focus that day yeah. obviously I wanted to make a good music video but it had to be like competent I didn't want to be garbage so uh, you try to do that with you know very little money and you're, you're working hard when we went to make you know, Sleep of Brooklyn there was more money but there was also it was bigger you know there yeah. was more going on and we also had come under the attention of like the record company. So suddenly, you know, notes are coming and can they do this? Can they do that? It was, it was a different experience. And, uh, but that would have been the first time you met Carrie King though, right? Oh yeah. Very first time I met him. Yeah. Ruben had been working with him, but I, look, for me, it was just a handshake at that moment. It wasn't a big deal. I I later went and saw the play at Memorial's and it was like, just Saturday watching early Slayer like that. But yeah, uh, it was, it was great, great, crazy. But, no, I just met him. Like, you know, he's, I mean, he was, he was kind of a nice guy. He came down to what he had to do. And, you know, and I was probably in my gorilla suit. <laughs> <laughs> so, final, thoughts, final thoughts on what, what what would you like to share with the people may or may not know or just something personal that's important to you for pe- that you would want people to know about Adam Yauch? Oh, man, Adam Yauch. Um, you know, I knew him. I was friendly. And, and we, you know, we got... I mean, we spoke many times. I mean, this is all before his, like, you know, uh, coming to Buddhism and all that. But, I mean, he was like a, a cool, scrappy New York slash, you know, Brooklyn kid. And um, always funny, always nice. We, we, I mean, we had many conversations. And, and I always found him... They were all very smart, cool guys. So it was like, you know, it was not 
that surprising to me when they went off on their own and they didn't need directors anymore. They were their own directors. They didn't need producers anymore. They were their own producers. Right. Um, and I just, you know, I I, I liked Yao very much. Really, the time that, that we spent was that, that, you know, short time in New York. I didn't know him later in life. And it would have been nice to, to have met him. And, of course, I was, you know, I was... You know, just as upset as, as a lot of other people, I think, when I heard he got sick and then when he passed away, and you know, because it was, it's a piece of all of us that's yeah. gone. And, and he, he was a, um, he was always a, he was a very cool customer. He he just had the, the, he just had a cool thing that I felt everybody else plays it trying to do. You know what I mean? It's almost that thing when someone's just naturally cool. And you wish you could be that cool. <laughs> right. He was that cool. He actually, I mean, even on the, on, the, on the set of the video, he didn't he didn't put it out to you like I'm cooler than you. He just was cool. Yeah, he just knew who he was, and and that was that was pretty neat. Which is why I think like and and they talk about this the beasties that you know later on when they became these kind of caricatures like pouring beer over their heads and stuff. When I when I saw all that, I just, I kind of knew I was like man, you know, especially yeah, he's too smart for this stuff. Yeah, you know what I mean, I mean they all are, but he was just like. I think that's why it wore thin on him quicker than the uh, than than everybody else. I think he was just like, man, we don't need to be these guys. We're, we're actually, you know, we can do something else. And I think they all came to that. And that's, of course, in the Beastie Boys story. And it's no surprise to me, man. They, they could do something else because I, I, I'll just, I'll end with this, this idea. Because if you read the press at the time that this came out, I, knew, I had heard License Still before it ever came out, and I knew it was like like a masterpiece. I just knew it was like the next step of something. But when it came out in the press, people kind of gave it a begrudging, like, okay, this is really good. But, it, but I remember reading a lot of press things that were like, you know, in 10 years we'll look back, and this will be the one-hit wonder joke that we laugh about, the way we laugh about something from like the 60s that's like a one-hit wonder thing. Okay? <laughs> yeah. Now, if you look at the press at the time, it's theirs. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I knew it wasn't going to be that, but the press just didn't know how to deal with something that new and groundbreaking. So they just called it a one-off. Yeah. And, of course, when Paul's Boutique came out, a lot of people were like, well, there you are, you see? They can't they, they can't follow it up. Now, of course, Paul's Boutique's now a masterpiece. Yeah. So I knew these guys could do something amazing. And I think, you know, it's just you need enough time and history to, to, prove, to prove it out. And now even Paul's Boutique's a masterpiece and... License Dale is a legend, you know. It's just, it's just insane. Um, so I, I, I think that's what's what needs to be remembered is that the, you know, the, the Beastie Boys evolved, but they were always there was always that core thing that was great, and of course, you know, the love of, of these guys that they had for each other, they really supported each other. So that was already there. They were already hanging together, thick as thieves. So um, yeah, I, I remember you know, quite fondly my my brief time with him, and I'm uh, you know. Uh, I, I always remember him on, on these times, you know. And, For sure. And I always try to try to you know think about the, the guy I knew at one at one point in time, and you know think think well of him. Uh, I certainly look. Hey, I got an opportunity with that guy. Yeah. Uh, we sat in a room and wrote that film together. That was that was Fights and Rights Party. So you know he gave me a chance, and uh, I you know I always loved him for that. That that was great. No harsh words ever. He was just always a good guy with me. You know. 
Well, Adam, I can't tell you how, how much fun this has been today. I Again, I want to tell our listeners, check out Murder in the Front Row. Go get it. Also, check out, again, like I said, the Beastie Boys stories that is available on Apple Plus right now. Uh, I'm so grateful to you to share that all those memories you had, not only with yep. the Beastie Boys, but with Adam for our MCA special, which will be will be coming yep. out, which we do every year. Um, so where can, they, where can they see the film? Where can they get it? It's available everywhere. Okay. Uh, our, our website has links to everything, but the film's available on Vimeo. It's on uh, Amazon, uh, and it's on iTunes, and uh, a whole bunch of other places. But th- those places cover a lot of ground. And it's then, available and then, worldwide. And then get the physical copy because, like you said, there's almost yeah. the, the same amount of, of, uh, of footage. So, uh, again, Adam, and I would love to. You, hopefully, you'll be hearing about our King's X project here pretty soon as well, I'm my friend. That. But uh, that's awesome, dude. Keep it going, man. That, there needs to be more documentaries. So, good luck with that. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that, man. Cheers to All you, right. Adam. Thanks, man. Bye, bye. Bye. Again, want to thank my guest, Adam Dubin. Uh, what a great talk that we had. And again, if you really want to find out more, uh, not only about the movie, like uh, it's all uh, available on all flat, uh, platforms and formats. Uh, I recommend, as you heard him say, get the physical copy because it's chock full of all kinds. It's almost like a, it's like another movie. It's awesome. Um, Again, uh, you know, we want to thank everybody for joining us. If you want to get involved with MCA Day, it's a it's a great thing. Uh, of course, remembering Adam Yauk, and there's a lots of great philanthropy and activism involved connected to that, which he did, you know, of course, in his throughout his life. Um, and if you haven't seen Beastie Boys Story, holy shit, that's so great! It was so much fun. I was so happy to have been able to have been at those shows in Brooklyn last year. Uh, and what an amazing thing! And just just the fact that we've got something new from the Beastie Boys to to enjoy forever. Um, anyway, so once again, look for us. We are on Facebook under uh, Tricky Kid Radio Podcast. We're on every freaking platform, man. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Spotify. We are now on Pandora, uh, part of the iHeartRadio family. Uh, and now also check us out on Anchor. Anchor.fm is a great, great platform. I'm really enjoying um being a part of that, and uh, and it's a great way where you use a quick thing on, app on your phone, a quick dive, and go to our page, and it's all right there, man. Uncensored, ready to rock, uh, ready to enjoy. So, again, for my special guest, Adam Dubin, uh, great talking with you, brother. Cheers to you, man. Great talking with you, man. Cheers to you. Uh, and I'm going to leave you with another one, uh, with Protest. This is the, the second track called Fueled by Hate. Again, it is coming out on this coming Friday, May the 8th on Idol Records. Check it out. And hey, man, we'll see you all next week.